Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for you. We thank you that you don't change. We thank you that you are the same yesterday and today and forever. And because of that, your word never changes. And the commandments and the instruction found in it never change. The culture may change drastically around us. But Lord, we are grateful that you can be our anchor, that you are our anchor, and your word is our anchor, that we can hook into and weather every moral dilemma, every debate, every storm, and know that your word is truth, and we can always rely on it. So Lord, I pray that these words would be spoken in truth and in love, that your spirit would go forth and work in hearts, that our eyes and ears may be opened as you plant your seeds of truth deep within us, and that they would result in the growth of change in our lives. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a certain story that's told a few different ways, but it goes a little bit like this. One day, a little boy came into the room. His mother was taking care of some work in with his hand stuck in an expensive-looking vase. His mother rushed over to him and said, Oh, honey, please take your hand and arm out of that vase. It's a priceless heirloom from your great-grandmother, and I really don't want you to break it. I can't, replied the little boy. My hand is stuck inside. His mother tried to help him take his arm out of the vase, but it wouldn't budge. She called to the boy's father, who was just in the other room, to come help. The boy's father tried everything to help release the boy's arm from inside the vase. He tried soapy water, and nothing happened. He tried using vegetable oil, and still the hand wouldn't budge. Exasperated, the boy's father finally said to his son and wife, just in general, I give up. I can't think of anything else. I'd give a dollar to figure out how to get his hand out of this vase. Immediately, the boy's parents heard a clink at the bottom of the vase. And the boy put the vase harmlessly on the floor and slid his arm out of it. What happened? asked the boy's mother. Well, replied the boy, I had accidentally dropped a penny into the vase. I didn't want to let go of the penny because that's all I had. But when daddy said he'd give a dollar for me to get my hand out of the vase, I knew that a dollar is worth much, much more than the penny I didn't want to let go of. I decided I'd much rather have that dollar. There are different things in our lives. Sins that we know are sins, but we don't feel the need to do anything about. Fears about different scenarios that we just can't shake. Sources of stress that we know debilitate us, but we don't know any other life. Or in connection with what we talked about last week, ways that we've been wronged that we just can't let go of. We just let them continue to stew. As Paul closes the section we've been spending the past month or so discussing, from chapter 5 through chapter 6, verse 11 of 1 Corinthians, he compares two different heart sets. One that doesn't see the need to get everything in their lives right with God. And one that is Christ's kingdom focused. By the end of the passage, we will see that a a life focused on Jesus' kingdom is infinitely more valuable and worthwhile than harboring different things that we know don't please God in our lives. 
Paul's charge at the end of this chapter will hopefully inspire and call each of us to make the hard decisions we need to make in order to have the most valuable life now as we look forward to eternity. This is going to be another one of those, like I said, those, these involved messages. For to truly understand and apply these verses in the context of what we've already covered, we need to see how they all fit together. So then we'll know how to apply them to our lives. So the first point that we come to in 1 Corinthians is the circumstances. And like I said, we're in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be finishing up this contextual section here uh, in chapter 6. So if you brought your Bible with you, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 9 through 11. If you didn't, that's fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there so we can all see this together. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, we talked last week about how chapter 5 verse 1, you can flip back if you need to to see this, how chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through chapter 6, verse 11, is the same context. We covered that last week. The overall context was the two extreme ends of the pendulum swing of judging within the church. If you remember from a few weeks back, from our exploration of what Jesus really meant in Matthew, when he said, don't judge lest you be judged, he was specifically rebuking the pharisaical practice of being highly critical of every single thing someone does. He, do, he did not mean never judge anyone for anything, for any reason, at any time. That is not what he meant. In fact, within the context of Jesus' words in Matthew 7, he does leave room for righteous judgment towards someone who needs correction. But what's his disclaimer about that? In Matthew 7. First, make sure you're not being a hypocrite in that area by making sure you've removed the log from your own eye and then you'll see clearly to give correction towards the person with the speck in their eye. Paul further affirms that instruction at the beginning part of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians when he uses his apostolic authority and rebukes the sinful actions of the unrepentant man who had been sleeping with his father's wife. And we, and we read in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 5 verse 3, For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Paul just affirms Jesus' words in Matthew 7. At the same time, Paul rebukes the church for not only their laxity in judgment and church discipline towards this man, who had reportedly had no intention of ever repenting, but their outright full acceptance and celebration of what he was doing. He tells the church, You are so proud of yourselves. But in reality, you should be mourning in sorrow and shame. And because it's gotten so bad, you should remove this man from your fellowship. We talked about how in chapter 5, verse 11, within this context, this judging does not include kicking everyone out of the church who struggles with a certain sin or is taking steps to correct that sin or who just found out <laughs> that it was a sin in the first place. What it does mean is that sometimes church discipline is needed towards those who are openly sinning and don't care about it and outright refuse to repent of it. Why? Because of the last verse of our passage this morning, verse 11 in chapter 6. Paul tells the Corinthians that they were once 
characterized by these sins, but instead of promoting being further characterized by them, they need to live as people who are now characterized by the transformation of the Holy Spirit in every area of their lives. Paul notes in chapter 5, verse 11, that anyone who calls themselves a brother or sister in Christ, but who refuses to surrender every single area of sin in their lives to God's transformation and not take any steps towards correction, not only invites God's personal discipline in their lives, but also invites church discipline as well. Why? Because Paul notes elsewhere Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, and this is what I want to focus on in these verses here, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." But the Corinthians had misapplied that instruction Paul had given in a previous letter, now long lost, and applied it to the world around them. Paul pointed out the absurdity of this misunderstanding and misapplication in chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. The Corinthians misunderstood righteous judgment within the church because of their misunderstanding of spiritual freedom. They thought that Jesus died and rose again to give them the freedom to just live their lives however they wanted. When in reality, as Paul closes this section with, Jesus died and rose again to give them the freedom to freely live their lives as pleasing to God as possible. That's what spiritual freedom really means. Whereas the Corinthians were on one end of the pendulum swing in their laxity and righteous judgment, they had also gone too far to the other end of the pendulum swing when it came to judgment and judged each other too much over anything they had been wronged with. Last week we talked about how Paul rebuked the Corinthians for their failure to be good representatives of Jesus' kingdom when it came to judging and church discipline and he rebuked them in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, for their failure to be good representatives of Jesus' kingdom when it came to their judgment in being wronged. Albeit just touching the surface, we spent a good deal of time last week exploring how we as believers in this current church age will join with Jesus in being some part of his hierarchical millennial kingdom when he sets it up on earth following the battle of Armageddon. If you have no clue what I'm talking about, that's okay. That message is up on our website and, uh, and our podcast. What Paul was rebuking the Corinthians for in chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 is that they had relinquished the responsibility that Jesus would give to them in the future in judging and ruling over the Gentile Christians that entered into the millennial kingdom in their natural bodies, along with the myriad of children that would be born to both them and, and the Jewish Christians during that millennium, and handed it over to the secular and pagan courts in deciding judgments between them as believers. What personal disputes that should have easily and biblically been handled by the church leadership between the church members, ironically being handed over to the same pagan world who would be deceived by the Antichrist and, and destroyed by Jesus at, at his second coming. That was the irony of that. Like we talked about last week, what biting irony was in that. 
We also talked last week about how Paul is a master at balance when it comes to his arguments and instruction. He instructed instructed the Corinthians in their laxity and righteous judgment. Then he instructed them on the other side of judging each other too much. Now he brings everything back to a balanced middle target, that of an overall kingdom-focused life. So the first point of the... the, um, First point that we talked about were the circumstances that Paul is writing into here. And secondly, the characterizations. Now we get to our verses here. Verses 9 through 10. Read along with me, please. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We talked last week about how Paul uses this phrase, do you not know, a lot in this letter. And his point is that these are basic truths the Corinthians should have already known. Perhaps ones that he himself had already taught them about. The same is true here. And and in in verses 9 through 10, Paul is recapping and expanding everything he said to this point in this contextual section. We talked about a couple weeks ago, if you compare chapter 5, verse 11, with chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, you'll see that a lot of the same sins are mentioned. You compare those lists. Uh, With uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, being an expanded version of chapter 5, verse 11. Like we've already discussed, this is by no means an exhaustive list, but is known in Scripture as a vice list, or a list of sins that characterized a culture. And again, it wasn't the culture that characterized or determined what was a sin, but rather a vice list was a list of biblically defined sins that characterized a culture. And I mentioned when we talked about this before that similarly, it wouldn't be much fun, but you could sit down and write a vice list that characterizes America if you really wanted to do that. For Paul's and the Corinthians' world, it was this this list of sins included in verses 9 through 10 of chapter 6. Within this same context, not only was this vice list what the Greco-Roman world struggled with the most, But according to the beginning of verse 9, this vice list was a list that characterized the unbelieving world that would not enter the millennial kingdom because they would be destroyed by Jesus at the battle of Armageddon. You'll see that Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Within the context of what he's already said in chapter 6, verses 3 through 4, the kingdom of God he's referring to here is the millennial kingdom that Jesus will set up at his second coming. Furthermore, these specific sins listed in chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, are especially the ones that characterize this unrighteous, unbelieving world that will be deceived by the Antichrist and destroyed at the battle of Armageddon. That's why Paul says, you better not be deceived by this already condemned world that will only be deceived itself by the Antichrist. 
The list of sins I've already introduced in chapter 5, verse 11, and I'm expanding on in chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, are ones that you especially should not have anything to do with and should especially have nothing to do with the church. We've already talked about some of the sins on this vice list when we discussed chapter 5, verse 11 a couple of weeks ago. Namely, idolaters, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, and by extension of swindlers, thieves. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go into those again. If you want to know what we talked about in connection with those sins, that message is also up on our website and podcast. What I want to discuss further this morning is the expansion of the sin of sexual immorality that Paul generally referenced in chapter 5, verse 11. When we talked specifically about that verse and earlier on at the beginning of chapter 5, how the Bible defines sexual immorality as a whole, I referenced several verses from throughout the Bible. Again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go over all of that biblical evidence for this definition. But what we saw from looking at the Bible as a whole, both Old and New Testaments, is that the Bible clearly defines the only God-given and God-approved sexual relationship as the one between a married husband and wife. As we also saw, the Bible also clearly defines that any other sexual relationship outside of that marriage relationship between one man and one woman is, as the writer of Hebrews put it, defiled and therefore sin. It seems like Paul has been referencing sexual immorality and specific examples of sexual immorality a lot in this letter, hasn't it? Obviously, the main reason is the situation he had to specifically address had everything to do with sexual immorality. Next week, we'll get into Paul's further explanation to the Corinthians as to why their attention to sexual purity was so important and not just an afterthought to things. For now, why is God, here's a question, why is God such a stickler for this specific definition? Why can't God just have an open mind about it? When we talked about this sensitive topic in the past, we saw that God created sex to be a powerful means of intimacy between a husband and a wife to keep them one and growing closer together as one in every way. So sex was always meant to be powerful, but taken out of context and its originally created purpose, it has the very real potential to be powerfully destructive. That's one of the reasons why God put the safeguard of marriage on sex to promote its power in married intimacy and to prevent its power in destruction. Why the strong emphasis on marriage and marriage between one man and one woman? Why can't sex equally be pleasing to God between two people in a committed relationship? Because of the original purpose for marriage and therefore for sex. When God created the first man and first woman in his image, he created marriage at the exact same time. Marriage and being made in the image of God are inextricable from each other. In fact, Genesis 2, 22 through 24 clearly tells us 
the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. You can think of God as walking her down the aisle, so to speak. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And you'll see I embolden these. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So we see that biblical definition of marriage and therefore sex right here in these three verses right here. When woman was created and brought to man, she was immediately married to him at that point. And for this reason, a man, the marriage continues. Man and wife, and they shall become one flesh. See, the creation of woman from man, both in God's image and God performing the first marriage ceremony, along with giving his purpose for marriage, all happened at the same exact time. In addition, what else's purpose is also created and established at the exact same time as the rest of this? They shall become one flesh. That means in every way, including, and for our current discussion, most importantly included, physically and sexually. We see that blueprint inextricably tied to the blessing that God gives to the first married couple and what that blessing included. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The blessing that God gave to the first sexual union between the first husband and first wife was the blessing of having children. Like I've mentioned before, because of the broken world we live in, many heartbroken couples are unable to bear children. And to you brothers and sisters, I only encourage that God is still in control and still has a plan for you. This is my point. Because childbearing, as we see from God's word, is so inextricably tied to the sexual relationship between a husband and wife, once that is theoretically removed, once that is stripped from God's part of his purpose for sex, it opens the door to the slippery slope for any and every kind of sexual relationship outside of the marriage blueprint in Genesis. Jesus also affirms the Genesis one through, uh, chapters 1 through 2 blueprint for marriage and sex in Matthew 19. I'm going to borrow Paul's words here and warn brothers and sisters, don't be deceived by the surrounding culture around you and buy into the belief that anything the surrounding culture puts their stamp of approval on is okay with God. In connection with the rest of our vice list that characterizes an unbelieving world that won't enter the millennial kingdom because they will be destroyed, we have the expansion of sexual immorality that was, we found in chapter 5, verse 11, with fornicators, adulterers, the effeminate, and homosexuals. We'll tackle the first one first. The word translated as fornicator here is actually derived from the same word that we get sexual immorality from, pornos. Pretty clear. 
If you take the word specifically, it means a male prostitute, but within this context and how it is used elsewhere in Scripture with similar contexts, it also means anyone who is engaged in sexual immorality. In connection with the selling aspect of prostitution, within other contexts, this also means a selling off or surrendering one's body to any sexual relationship that does not fit God's blueprint in Genesis. The next one, adulterers, is a furthering of that sexual immorality. It's not only engaging in a sexually immoral relationship, but one that betrays the other spouse's trust. It is an unfaithfulness that spits on marriage also being an illustration of God's faithfulness and love towards us, like we read already, and going so far as to die on the cross for us. As we have the blessing of knowing God will never betray us, and that he can always be trusted, marriage is also meant to reflect that integral aspect of our relationship with God. That's why God treats it so strongly in his word. The next sin in this list is translated for us in the NASB as the effeminate. That may be translated differently in your version. This does not mean any man who has any interests or hobbies that is not considered manly by a culture or he carries himself a certain way. That does not mean this at all. <clears throat> as delicately as I can put this, this term is referring to a man who willingly allows himself to be the subjected person in a homosexual relationship. I'm sure I don't need to explain any further than that. That is directly connected to the last sin in this vice list we'll tackle today, and that's homosexuality. This is not referring to a victim of this relationship because it's also translated from a combination of two Greek words, the word for male and the word for bed. So directly translated, this means a male who takes another male to bed. And we know from other messages, the word bed is an idiom for a sexual relationship. <clears throat> Anyone who thinks that homosexuality in Paul's day was not as interwoven into the culture as it is today is sorely mistaken. According to one biblical scholar, and I quote, homosexuality was especially characteristic of Greco-Roman society. The Greek philosopher Plato celebrated homosexual love in his work entitled The Imposium. Fourteen of the first fifteen Roman emperors were homosexual or bisexual. At the time of Paul's writing 1 Corinthians, the Roman emperor Nero was about to marry the boy Sporus, only noteworthy in its formality, for it was encouraged in Roman society for a man to have sexual relationships with other men before they got married to a woman. It was encouraged for them to explore that. Since we saw that God's original blueprint for marriage and therefore sex included the bearing of children and that that was inextricably tied to man and women, man and woman being created in the image of God, it's no wonder that when Paul described what humankind when, when humankind 
denied God as their creator and rebelled against the law that he had written upon their hearts, God allowed them to do whatever they now wanted to do with their newfound freedom. And what did humanity immediately want to do with their newfound freedom? It's very telling. As they denied God as their creator and therefore denied him being made in his image, they showed that by immediately engaging in the complete opposite of what God created sex and marriage to be. We read, that is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. One cannot hold the belief that the Bible is the word of God, and at the same time believe that they can pick and choose which parts they want to agree with. I'm sorry, that is an immature and illogical way of handling the Bible, of handling what we believe to be God's word. I wanted to simply bring out what the Bible instructs on the subject, not to bash anyone who struggles with any of these sins listed on this vice list or any other sin that's not listed on this list, but to give the biblical definition. Once that's established, then repentance can happen where it's not happened yet, and transformation can begin, and the next steps to, to correct it can begin, and healing can begin. Having homosexual, bisexual, or transsexual desires may always be something that someone, even a redeemed believer, struggles with. The point is not that someone will ever not have those desires someday in this life, but that we are daily surrendering what we know to be sinful desires, no matter what they are, to God's redemption and transformation into the image of His Son. One day, we will all be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and we will all be given glorified bodies freed from sin. And what a glorious day that will be. Amen? Furthermore, as I alluded to last week, we as the church cannot shut ourselves off from anyone in the world engaged in a lifestyle contrary to God's word. That would be doing what the Corinthians were doing in misapplying God's instruction, uh, Paul's instruction, God's instruction of judging those outside of the church. We must, as the body of Christ, portray and convey the truth and love of the gospel and bringing them the hope of salvation from sin that was once told to us, no matter who it is. We talked about the circumstances, we talked about the characterizations, and lastly, we're going to talk about the call. That's what brings us to our last verse. Verse 11. This verse is the crowning jewel to this entire section. Because if Paul merely ended with this expanded vice list in verses 9 through 10 of chapter 6, none of us would have any hope. 
even if the sin we struggle with isn't on this list, still none of us would have any hope. We all need to be honest with ourselves and with God and call sin in our lives what it is. But the story does not end there. That's a glorious truth. The story does not end there. And thank God for that, for all of us, for verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. If we have recognized that none of us is perfect, we've sinned, we continue to sin, we don't and cannot measure up to God's perfect standard, and we need a Savior from that sin, we're in the best place we possibly can be. A lot of people would never want to admit to that, and they see that as a weakness. But if we're in that place, that's the greatest place of strength. Why? Because then we can accept the gift that Jesus died on the cross and rose again three days later to give to us. And like that little boy at the beginning of our message this morning realized about a dollar in comparison to a penny, it's the greatest gift we could ever receive. What do we receive? Not only do we receive forgiveness from that sin and therefore reconciliation with Almighty God, but we receive God Himself literally indwelling us. I don't know how many of us recognize the tremendous power that God residing within us gives to us. We keep falling down time and time and time again and beat ourselves up about it time and time and time again. Sometimes for years without realizing the washing and sanctifying and transformative power that has been extended to us and can be fully utilized on a daily basis. God has already justified us. Amen. He has already declared us legally righteous in His sight by the transferred righteousness of Jesus over to us. Whereas the prevailing Jewish understanding was that they had to earn God's love by their obedience to Him, we have the gift of already being seen as righteous in His sight. We obey His commandments and His standards now, not out of fear of tripping up, but out of our love for Him and our gratitude for His gift of justification to, to us. So because of that freedom, if there, is nothing, if, there, if there is anything we have not repented of and haven't started to take steps to correct, verse 11 of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians is an inspiring call to get those things right with God. It's not for fear of losing our salvation, but for excitement at how God can grow us even more and use us even more. As has been mentioned in connection with the other verses in chapter 5 and beginning part of chapter 6, let us be excited about the spiritual freedom we've been given to be as pleasing to our King as we can be with the way that we live our lives. Let us be excited about giving up that harbored sin, finally having freedom from it and surrendering it to the transformative power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
Let us be excited about all that God will do in our lives and the breathtaking ways he will use us when we cast off those burdens of sin. And there's nothing between us and him. I know I've closed messages with these verses before, but this just fits this perfectly as well. Our inspiring call as we end things this morning. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. This is exciting. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. And remember, as we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, the champion who has already gone before us, we know that God, the Holy Spirit, is right there along with us every step of the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words in your word. We thank you that it gives us definitions of your standards Lord, I pray that you would give us courage, that you would give us strength, that you would give us power to be honest with ourselves and to be honest before you, to call any harbored sin we know we're still harboring and we have not repented of and taken steps to correct it, what it is, and that we would begin that process of repentance and transformation and healing keeping our eyes focused on you, the champion of our faith, knowing you as the Holy Spirit indwells us and is with us every step of the way. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.